We are uh, going to study the book of Revelation. How appropriate that we have a 4.3 scale earthquake this afternoon. Did you guys feel that? <laughs> you know, it doesn't bother me that much to feel that in my house, but I was here in the church, and this is not a small building, on the first floor, and I, and I could feel it. And I thought, this is, this is an omen. So we have an earthquake and a tornado warning. It's a great time to start the book of Revelation tonight. I think we set the stage just perfectly. We're going to talk about, uh, we've been in a series called Beginnings and Endings. We went through the book of Genesis to see the beginning view, and now we're going to go through the book of Revelation and kind of get the view from the ending. So over the next, this session of our Wednesday night services lasts seven weeks, but we'll spend a little more than that in Revelation. You really can't do justice to it and take the questions that we want. So we'll do seven weeks and then there'll be just a little break and then we'll kind of go into the summer with this. One other thing I wanted to tell you because I forget to mention this to you, but we videotape all the Wednesday night lessons and they're all on our website under uh, the teachings tab on our website. And so probably the last 10 Wednesday night series are out there. So the video and the slides and and all that stuff is out there on the web. So if you're ever interested, feel free to, to check that out, and we'll be recording these in case you miss a week. Usually a couple days after the class, the video's up, so that way you can kind of stay in sequence with us, okay? Let me pray for us, and then we'll just jump into our text. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this evening, grateful for this opportunity to come together and dive into your word. I pray that over the course of this study, you would help us to using our, our minds, that we would dive further into your word and just see more of the beauty, more of the truth, and that you would fan the, the flame of our faith into even hotter focus. Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit of confidence, a spirit of confidence and not of fear or weakness, but that in light of what you plan to do in the world, that we would be bold to take your word to a world that desperately needs it. pray you bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to start with a uh, little bit of an introduction to the book of Revelation. As you know, uh, questions, text your questions during class to that number. It's also, I think, on the bottom of your handout. But we're going to, I thought the best way to do the introduction was to ask three questions. And we'll answer those questions with a little bit of uh, basically what is the book of Revelation, what's its context, and we're not going to go into huge detail, but i really like you to get a sense of the context because that's one way to establish the relevancy of this book. I think the context is going to reinforce how relevant that it is for today, and then we want to talk about when are these things going to happen. So first of all, what is uh, the book of Revelation? Opens with this passage. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed or happy is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Well, first of all, just right at the beginning, this is a revelation, or the Greek word behind that is the word apocalypse. And so an apocalypse is literally a revealing of something. So a revelation is something that is hidden, something that we would not have known had it not been revealed to us. Here's a great way to think of this. You know all these shows we have now for total home makeovers? 
And so at the end of the show, the people show up and there's a huge you know, board, a picture of what their house used to look like. And then they wheel it away and there's the new house behind it. By the way, have you ever seen a reality show where they went, oh, that's not what we had in mind at all. <laughs> yeah, I think they edit those out. But that's the big reveal, right? Where you move the thing out of the way and, ah, there it is. Well, think of that as a revelation. This is basically something that God has thrown out to Jesus, communicated to John. John's faithfully written it down, and this is something that's revealed, things that we would not, could not have known otherwise. So a revelation. It's also revealed in a particular way. And so that word behind revelation, apocalypse, this, an apocalypse is simply a body of information that's been revealed. We think of it primarily as Christians as this particular book, this particular revelation. But in general, it's part of a whole genre of apocalyptic kind of literature. In other words, revealing knowledge through a certain way of doing it, a very highly symbolic way, through visions, through uh, you know, keys and symbols, not written like the small print of your cell phone contract. You know, it's, it's much more symbolic than that. It's as hard to understand as the small print of your cell phone contract, but it's written in a, in a more symbolic way. And there are a lot of apocalyptic literature in this era and before this time. Probably in the Bible, Daniel is the one that you're most familiar with, some of the visions in Daniel. But there are other pieces of literature outside the Bible that are written in this way that purport to reveal information, but they do it in a particular manner. And that's what we call apocalyptic uh, literature. I love this quote by Bruce Metzger in, where he talks about how do you read, really apocalyptic literature in general, but certainly the book of Revelation. Think of it as word pictures. Think of it less as sort of propositional statements trying to convey information. You know, don't think of it like the Ten Commandments or even like the Sermon on the Mount. Think of it more as an as a ancient movie, if you will, uh, something that's intending to invoke pictures and feelings and ideas more than just the specific details of the words themselves. So as you go through, you'll find that this revelation is very evocative of feelings. And that's why the word apocalypse to us comes down as a word that that kind of has a, not necessarily a negative connotation, but if, when we talk to you about an apocalypse, you think of a dreadful, serious, major kind of an event, and it makes you feel a certain way. That's because that's what this literature is designed to invoke. And the nature of this apocalypse is one that you begin to see the struggle of evil with God's people, and it, it begins to be invoke uh, an idea of struggle and strife and fear and triumph and all kinds of emotions and pictures come through. So that's what the, the book of Revelation effectively is, is it's, it's this apocalyptic literature that wants to convey information, but not necessarily in the way you're used to hearing it. The other thing that the book of Revelation is, is sometimes thought of as a road map to the end times. And that may be so, depending on your view of it, but it's far more than just a roadmap to what's going to happen before the end of time. How, basically, for you and me, it's like, how do I know when to cash out my 401k and spend it all? 
You know, that's not really what Revelation's about, is to give us the signposts of, okay, end of the world's about here, let's jump off, uh, let's get out of Wall Street and li- you know, liquidate and spend our money. That's not really what it's for. What we saw in Genesis was you saw God's plan from the beginning, and you saw the, the fundamental issues of humanity and God's plan and the trajectory to redeem us. With Revelation, we get to go to the other end and understand from God's perspective how this plays itself out. That's really important because it's hard to understand a story in totality if you don't know the beginning and often if you don't know the end. How many times have you gone into a situation at work or in a family or you know what's, what's going on in this situation and say, well, to understand that, I need to tell you how it started. You need to understand the history of this relationship or the history of this situation first. So Genesis gives us a unique perspective, for example, on Jesus. We understand Jesus' ministry much better, I would argue, can't really be understood well at all without understanding this redemptive plan of God. Same is true with the book of Revelation. Trying to understand Jesus' ministry without the viewpoint of the end times, what's called the eschatological or the ending viewpoint, is to really take Jesus' ministry and not understand it very well at all. When we take Genesis and God's redemptive plan out of Jesus' ministry, we tend to view Jesus as being all about me. I mean, if you stop and think about it, before we know much, you think Jesus came, died on a cross to save Terry. That's true, but it's just part of a much, much grander thing, much bigger truth. You understand Genesis and the rest of the scriptures, you go, oh, God's got something magnificent happening here, and I am a part of God saving all of us, saving all of his people. You begin to get a completely different perspective. Without understanding the end, and you look at Jesus, now Jesus becomes very, uh, in the words of one writer these days, kind of moralistic and therapeutic. In other words, yes, God's saving his people. He pretty much saved them. Now, Jesus, what can you do for me? In other words, there's no kingdom aspect. There's no trajectory of where this is going. It pretty much stops with me. It's like, Jesus, can you make my teeth whiter and can you uh, increase my 401k and can you make my marriage better? We, we tend to get into this whole therapeutic Jesus because we don't put it in view of where this is going. So book of Revelation is also a great way to understand the ministry of Jesus and what God is doing. That's basically what the book of uh, Revelation is about. But context, let's put this in its context a little bit because I want you to see how similar our situation is to the time that this was written. This, I'm going to argue that Revelation isn't necessarily written about us, but it most certainly is written for us and to us. It's not necessarily written about us. I mean, that kind of depends on your on the way you view the book. But fundamentally, I think we're all going to agree that it's most certainly written for us in some sense and very much applicable to us. Well, in John's time, he said, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering of the kingdom, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So what is, what is he saying? He says, basically, he was a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Put a little map up there so you could see it's off the coast of modern-day Turkey, the seven churches 
of Revelation that we'll talk about in our next lesson are in what is modern-day Turkey. They were the Roman province of Asia. But he was basically a prisoner on the island of Patmos. That's where the Romans sent people who were a problem, generally political problems. You know about the Apostle Paul and the trouble he got into, not only with the Jews, but then ultimately with the Romans. And so by this time, John has also gotten into trouble. And I'd like to talk to you about why he's getting into uh, that trouble. Let's look at what's going on in this time frame. Basically, from uh, here are the Roman emperors and what's happening during this time. We're not going to get into great detail here, but I kind of want you to understand what's happening. Before about 54 AD, in the early church, when you read the book of Acts, you realize that the Christians are primarily being persecuted by the Jews. They think that what the Christians are teaching about Jesus being the Messiah is not true. And so they begin to persecute them and oppress them, and it gets pretty severe, if you recall. Along about the time of Nero, there begins to be an understanding on the Romans' part that the Christians and the Jews are different groups of people. In other words, they thought, well, you just got all these Jews arguing with other Jews, and I, I just really don't want to hear it, and you, know, you Jews go settle that stuff. But along about the time of Nero, there begins to dawn on the idea that the Christians and the Jews are different. And Nero, for political reasons, finds it very expedient to separate the Jews and the Christians, and, you know, he kind of makes the Christians scapegoats. So during the time of Nero, you begin to see the Roman Empire turn its attention toward them. Then you see the rebellion in, seven, in 66 AD, but basically the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, where the Roman Empire gets focused on the Jews and scatters them. And now, in that scattering process, the Jews really kind of shrink back into a survival mode the Christians scatter, and they just go on the attack into spreading the kingdom mode all over the place. And so as time goes on, and certainly by the time you get to the end of the first century with an emperor named Domitian, you begin to see a very focused persecution by the Romans of the Christians. So the Roman mind is starting to turn toward them, and this emperor Domitian is where I'm not going to get into a lot of discussion just because time doesn't permit of when this is written. There are a couple of different points of view, but I'm going to operate from the point of view that this is when John is writing the book of Revelation, that he has been suffering persecution by the Romans for this message that he is spreading. He's sent to the island of Patmos in this time frame, and that it's near the end of his life and near the end of the first century when he's writing the book of Revelation. And it reflects those times of persecution. Does that make sense? So Christians are being persecuted by the Romans. It's going to ramp up. It's going to get unbelievable for the next 200 years. But for the time of John, you see that some of this writing is best understood, in, and it's going to be very obvious that it's happening in a time of pretty intense persecution for them. But I want to talk to you just a little bit about why they're being persecuted. And this is a little bit counterintuitive. In the time of the Romans, there was a thing in this era, it started with Caesar Augustus, but by this time it's going full-fledged called the uh, imperial cult or the emperor cult. And that is where basically emperors thought that they were in some sense divine. They began to embody the Roman state and began to think of themselves as gods. It starts with Caesar Augustus being called Augustus. I mean, that was a title that implied some level of divinity. By the time you get to Domitian, 
He was a humble guy. He just wanted to be known as our Lord and our God. All right? Which, good title, if you can get it on your business card, I recommend it. But basically, that's the way they thought. And it gets even more so during the progressive emperors. But at this point in time, he be, they began to see themselves as representatives of the Romans and as gods. Not only that, they also had a whole pantheon of gods. Their understanding of gods was that the health of the Roman Empire depended greatly on the piety of the Roman people. In other words, you needed to go make sacrifices to the gods so they wouldn't get angry and cause things like earthquakes in Oklahoma or droughts or all kinds of bad things that really affected the economy and people's lives. They thought those things were expressions of the gods being unhappy. So we need to keep the gods happy. We need to be good citizens. Part of that was worshiping the emperor, but part of it was also just keeping up the shrines for all the Roman gods and keeping them happy. So their idea of being a good religious person and being a good citizen were pretty much the same thing. Make sense? So if you weren't a good religious person in their sense, you were also not a good citizen. And so you find that particularly in Asia Minor, particularly over in what's Turkey today, the imperial cult is really flowering at this time. They are, have found that it's economically a good idea for them to worship the emperor. They found that it's a great way to get some imperial attention, to get some of those federal funds flowing their way, to build some bridges and roads and temples and tourist attractions. But for whatever reason, it was, it was a big deal in this area where John ends up being and where he's writing to these people. So they, they are basically in a hotbed of worshiping. Here's the problem. The Christians won't do it. Christians won't worship the other gods. Christians certainly aren't going to bow down to the emperor's god. They just have one god. And so that begins to bring them into conflict. And in fact, the Romans thought of the Christians as being atheists. When they said atheist, they didn't mean what we mean, mean today, and that is that they don't believe in any god. It just means you're atheist. You don't believe in the gods, including the emperor. You guys deny that Apollo is a god and that the emperor is a god and all the various gods, so you're atheist. So religiously, you're kind of outcast, but even more so, there have become so many Christians that worship at the temples and all kind of falls off. So now when you have an earthquake or something bad, and that happened in that part of the world all the time, still does, then it became apparent that the gods were unhappy. Why were they unhappy? It's those Christians won't do their civic duty. There's an interesting little letter that you may have uh, seen before or may not, but that was written from a guy named Pliny the Younger. He was a governor, a Roman governor, and 111 to 113, so this is close in time to what we're talking about with John. Think of John maybe, maybe 95 AD writing this letter right around that time frame. Well, not long after, there's a letter written from this Roman governor to the emperor that time, and he's writing about the Christians. He is the governor in an area just north of where we're talking about, up in the northern part of what would be modern-day Turkey. And uh, John is imprisoned down near Ephesus, that you can see on this map. So it's in the same part of the world, it's in the same era, and so it gives us a great insight into how the Romans were thinking about this problem. And you can draw two interesting conclusions. Number one, 
Christianity has spread so much, there's so many believers, that it is a real problem for the government. And secondly, the government has reacted by saying, you Christians are a problem. You're not good citizens, and so the full force of Roman law and punishment is going to come down on you. Pliny writes a letter to the emperor, and it's worth reading this, so I'll just kind of read this uh, to you. But he says to the emperor, he said, it's my practice to ask you about things that I'm in doubt. He says, because this is the flattery part of the letter. Who can better give guidance or inform my uh, ignorance? He says, I have never participated in trials of Christians, so I need some guidance on this. I don't know what offenses we should be punishing or investigating and to what extent. Well, first of all, this tells you right away that we're having trials of Christians. There's something bad about being a Christian, and the force of Roman law is going to punish you for being a Christian. He says... I've been a little hesitant whether there should be any distinction on account of age or the very young or the more mature, whether pardon is to be granted for repentance, or if once you've been a Christian, then it doesn't do any good to stop being one, or even the name itself without doing anything is a bad thing and should be punished. He said, I'm just not sure how to punish the Christians. In the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, he said, here's what I've been doing. If they said, were denounced as a Christian, I asked them whether they were or not. And those who said, yes, I'm a Christian, I interrogated them a second time and a third time. And if they still said that they were Christians, I had them killed. He said, basically, because whether they were Christians or not, anybody that won't just change their mind after I've asked them three times ought to die. In other words, these are the kind of people that just aren't very cooperative, you know? Probably have a couple of those in your homeowners association. But basically, his answer was, you know, if, if you're not going to change, I'm going to kill you. So he's asking for guidance on this. He said, so that's what I've been doing. He said, I have no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, that kind of stubbornness surely deserves to be punished. He says, but here's the problem. Many persons of every age and rank and both sexes are being endangered. In other words, Christians aren't just poor people. They're also rich people. Christians aren't just men, women. They're not just slaves. They're free people. In other words, this Christianity thing has infected everyone. For the contagion of this superstition, from his point of view, it's superstition, has spread not only to the cities but the villages and the farms. But I think we can check this and cure it because it's clear that the temples, which have been almost deserted, in other words, nobody's offering sacrifices at the temples, he said, I think we can get that back by if we'll kill enough of them and intimidate everybody into doing it. He said, I think we can get this resumed and animals are starting to come to be sacrificed to the gods. So... Maybe we can get these people to repent and we can turn around our civic fortunes. So the emperor, Trajan, responds. He said, you're doing the right thing, Pliny. You've got to sift the cases of those who've been denounced to you as Christian. He said, it's hard to have a general rule, but basically, if they are Christians, they are to be punished. But if they're willing to deny that they're Christians and prove it by actually worshiping our gods, then we'll give them a pardon. So my point to you in sharing this is to, I want you to get a sense of, of what's going on at that time. This is the environment in which, the timing in which God decided to reveal this information. He's revealing it to a church that is incredibly successful, meaning the Christianity spreading all over the place successfully, but it's now coming under incredible persecution 
by the Roman authorities, by the government, mainly because it is so successful and mainly because it is an affront to the ideology of the Roman government. This idea of the one God, this idea of uh, there being no other gods, there's so many different ways that Christianity was offensive. Even though Christians were not bad citizens, other than refusing to offer these sacrifices, Christians weren't bad citizens. They didn't commit crimes. They weren't embezzling or stealing, or they were paying their taxes. But their ideology clashed very much with the Roman world. And my point to you in, in bringing this out is, first of all, it's going to explain a lot of what Revelation, how Revelation talks about things. It also sets the stage for what I'm going to argue are recurring themes. If you just stop for a second and think about what we just talked about and put it into our modern context, it is eerie, the similarities between that time and where we appear to be headed, particularly in the liberal democracies of our world, in Europe and in the United States. What you see is Christianity has been wildly successful meaning that if you poll people in America, a huge percentage will say they're Christians. Are they followers of Christ? Are they not? Leave that question aside. We are a, quote, Christian nation in the sense that most of the people in this country will say, I'm a Christian. So it's been wildly successful in that all stations, ages, ranks, you know, social strata, you have all these Christians. And it's beginning to come under great and intense scrutiny by our culture because we're kind of coming head to head with our culture. There are certain gods of our culture. We call a lot of these things by other words. We'll call them political correctness. We'll call them ideals you know, for which we stand. We'll call them civil rights or we'll call them the American way. There are a lot of labels for this, but fundamentally what they are are things that our culture holds up as transcendent values, as gods. We just don't use the word gods, but we effectively worship certain ideas and certain ways of doing it. Christians don't accept that. It's exactly the same situation as what we have here. And so where John is put on the island of Patmos because he says, I'm a Christian and I'm not going to renounce it and I'm not going to serve your gods, you begin to see today Christians coming under a lot of scrutiny because they stand up for their beliefs. Begin to see erosions of what we would consider free speech or religious speech is eroded. We begin to see uh, a lot of attacks, multi-pronged attacks on the idea of religious freedom. At first, it was confining our religious speech and religious freedom to certain sectors of the public square. Now it's become more make it private, keep it out of the public square. So if you look around and just read the newspapers and see what's happening, you begin to see the same fundamental conflict. That's one of the things that you're going to see in the book of Revelation. In speaking to John's situation, you're going to see this book speaking very vividly to our situation as well. Questions? Yes. You talked about the general time frame when the book of Revelation was written. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us why it is placed at the end of our Bible? Is it because of when it was written, or is it because of its content? Because of when it's written or its content, it's probably giving a little too much uh, credit to planning uh, and as far as that goes. I mean, we'll talk about this in later times, but not all of uh, Christians have 
have felt that the book of Revelation caused them some trouble. The book of Revelation wasn't thought of as being on a par with some of the other books as they thought about bringing it into the scriptures for a variety of reasons. As we go on, and it becomes natural to talk about that, we'll talk about why that is. So the book of Revelation is a little bit, a little bit, of a stepchild early on. There's no question the church just uniformly understood this is clearly a revelation from God. But there are things in it that people didn't like very well. It challenged some of their preconceived ideas. So the book of Revelation really is, was not entirely accepted. As far as why it is where it is, it makes sense to be at the end, just like it makes sense for Genesis to be at the beginning, because it's kind of the end story. Probably has a little bit more to do with just how we choose to publish it. Has, I mean, in early times, it had a lot to do with how long it was. So you would put the things on scrolls based on their length, right? You want to make sure you don't run out of room at the end of the scroll and have to leave off half the revelation. We might be missing some important stuff here. But basically, it makes sense to us in our Bibles to put it at the end for a variety of reasons. But it makes a lot of sense. Genesis at the beginning, Revelation at the end. Um, you have said that the author was the Apostle John. There are people who think that it may have been someone else. What is your view on that, and does it make a difference to us? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I'm skipping over a lot of things, so thanks for asking those questions. A lot of disagreement. When I say a lot of disagreement, there are a lot of different ideas. I don't know that this is something that makes any huge difference to people, but the traditional understanding in the early church fathers is that this is written, that this John, who's only identified as John, and that was a common name like John, it still is, right, that that John was John the Apostle. In later times, some, some people doubted and said, wait a minute, maybe it's not, maybe it's John the Elder, maybe it's John of Patmos, a different guy, maybe it's just another guy named John, and we don't actually know who it is. And so there have been various traditions, various arguments. I found that the further you get away from the event, uh, the more heated the debate gets about it. In other words, today, stop and think about it. If you want to go write, a P, write your paper to get a PhD today, they're not going to give you a PhD for arguing that this is John the Apostle. In other words, people like to hear new things and new ideas. So right now, it's, it's mildly popular to be a little skeptical about that, but really there's, not, there's no serious argument in my view about it, mainly because there's no particular evidence that is worth overturning the thinking of the early church fathers. Do I have a lot of evidence to say this was John? I got a fingerprint off this and did a DNA check, and it, sure enough, it was John the Apostle? Of course not. But barring anything really compelling, I don't see any reason to overrule what the uh, early Christians thought about it. But given that you can't be 100% certain, does it matter to us? It matters a little bit in my view because part of the reason that the books that are in the Bible are in the Bible, one of the criteria is that it does have a link with that apostolic tradition and the apostolic teaching. But in the big scheme of things, as far as can God get his revelation to us, no, it, it doesn't matter. In other words, at the end of the day, uh, that would be a weird thing to have a problem with the book of Revelation about, to me, in my view. So yes, there's a lot of discussion about that. So do you think that the Emperor Trajan looked like Putin? Emperor Trajan <laughs> looks like Putin? I think the spirit of Trajan lives on in many world leaders today, unfortunately. That's, that's a good point. Well said. 
the idea of the, we've looked at just briefly this idea of, you know, what is the book of Revelation? What's its historical context? I just want to give you one other thought here, because this verse comes to my mind a lot when I read the book of Revelation. It's connecting with something Jesus said. And I know that he said this to his disciples, and I know that what he said to them came true in that immediate future. This isn't necessarily something that was pointedly said to us, but I think the wisdom of the scriptures is such that, that uh, Jesus is not only speaking to his disciples. I believe his words are prophetic in the sense that it's very predictive of what we will do. He says, I've told you that the time will come when they're going to put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time's coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They'll do these things because they have not known the Father or me. And that was true in the short-term sense. That happened to his disciples, not just the twelve. It happened to many of the early disciples. They were thrown out, and people thought they were actually doing something good for God by hating, killing, imprisoning, confiscating the property, persecuting, in a word, early Christians. And I think you're seeing that same thing come around. The Romans were persecuting the Christians, and did they think that they were just being mean? No. They thought that the Christians were the bad guys because they weren't good citizens. They were the reason that the gods were angry, and so they were causing trouble for everyone else. So, of course, we're justified in all the mean things we're going to do to Christians. I'd simply point out to you, is this starting to sound a little familiar to you? If you pick up our newspapers, you begin to get this sense that restricting Christians, restricting what they say, restricting their religious freedom, whatever, is actually a good thing because Christians are doing something wrong. They're violating people's civil rights, they're being intolerant, they're being hateful, they're being judgmental, they're being something undesirable to society. And I just want to point out without hitting this too hard, but you're going to see this as we go through, and you're going to just hear eerie echoes of history reverberating in our present time because this little scene is playing itself out again and again, and unfortunately it's playing itself out now in our culture as well. Well, the structure of the book, as we get into it, this is just really high level, not very detailed at all, but fundamentally a great way to think about this is the first three chapters are opening of the vision, John explaining this is a revelation of Christ, but it's going to be a letters to seven actual churches that existed at that time. Now, I think there's probably more to that, but we're going to look at those seven letters. From there, chapters 4 through around 19 are a series of visions, and there's a really pretty structure. In recent times, I think there's been more appreciation for the drama, the literary structure of what's happening in those chapters. You have this really pretty symmetry of three sets of sevens happening, and, and there are all kinds of interesting things happening. In other words, this isn't just... God saying, here's what's going to happen. This is also presented in a way that's aesthetically very beautiful. It's, it's one of the really brilliant things about our God is not only is our God our God, not only is what he says true, but the way he says it is just brilliantly done. And you'll see that in the book of Revelation as well. Chapter 20, again, continues. These are pretty much all visions, but chapter 20 has that great thousand-year uh, passage, the millennial time period and the last judgment, and so we'll consider it as a separate entity, and then chapters 21 and 22 
new heaven and new earth. And there are several ways to understand all of those chapters. And when we get there, we'll look at the different ways to understand those chapters. But that's kind of a rough outline of how the book breaks down. I say this because if you haven't read it very much, it's nice to have a little bit of a road map to it. And I'd like you to read it. You're going to see a lot of symbols, but as we go through, we're going to decode some of the symbols. Not in the sense that we'll have 100% certainty about everything, but once we start to unlock the key to some of the symbols, it's going to start to make sense. And while we might have different ways of looking at the book of Revelation, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, there are some ideas that are going to come through so strongly and powerfully that they're really going to override any differences that we have, in my view. But it's nice as you read through it to kind of know where am I. You can get lost in the visions and the plagues and the smiting and the persecution and all kinds of things when you get in. Every now and then when you come up for air, this is kind of a good way to think about where am I. And it kind of breaks itself down into those sections pretty well. Well, when, the third question, first is what is the book of Revelation? Second is what's its context and its relevance? And hopefully you'll see that this book written in that time to those people has a great deal of relevance to us and how are we going to interact with our world that also treats us in, in a lot of similar ways. The third question is when are these things going to happen? That's the easiest way I can explain how people look at this book differently, at least till we get to chapter 20. People look at this book a little differently because they answer the question of when are these things going to happen a little bit differently. I'll show you what I mean. There are a lot of different interpretive views of Revelation, but there are probably four primary ways of looking at it. There are kind of four ways to answer that question. When did these things happen, or when are these things going to happen? And based on how we answer that is going to be sort of the interpretive lens that we take to the book. As we go through, we're going to look at it through several lenses because we want to engage this book to get as much as we can. We want to hear everything God is saying. And I doubt we can do that through any one particular lens. It's possible to have a more eclectic view where you, you, know, you have to say, well, which one of these am I? Well, each one of them has a little different flavors. And in some cases, it's possible to do a little combining and still be logically consistent. But they break down basically to four ways to answering when did these things happen. The preterist view is basically the view that says these prophecies, these visions, all the things that we're going to talk about here, they happened shortly after the time of writing. Two big schools of thought. One is that it happened right around the time of the fall of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That would necessitate an earlier writing than what I've told you. Or that it basically happened uh, somewhere around the time of Domitian and some would say even as far as the fall of the Roman Empire. But big picture that all of these things pretty much happened, or most of them have happened, shortly after the time of writing. And that's called a preterist view. The historicist view is basically saying that this is sort of like a secret map. And it's sort of like a code where you can decode all of history. The historicist view says all the visions and the prophecies in the book of Revelation are actually kind of a secret map for all of church history. And you'll see, as we look at the historicist view, that they're going to want to take the chronology of these visions and apply them to history, all the way up to the present and into the future, and say, this is a secret code to explain all the things that have happened 
in the church age, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Third view says no. Predominantly, the things that are in the book of Revelation have yet to happen. They will all happen in the future. They're going to happen shortly before the end of time, the second coming of Christ, the judgment, the new heaven, the new earth. In other words, kind of the ending of this whole story. This is the roadmap that tells you what's going to happen, and these events are all going to happen shortly before then. So that's the futurist view. And then the fourth has a lot of different names. I'm going to call it symbolic, idealist, spiritual. Basically, though, it says that wrong question. They didn't happen shortly after writing. These events haven't happened throughout all of history, nor have these events going to necessarily specifically happen in the future, that the book of Revelation isn't about when these things will happen. This is describing recurring themes. This is describing ideas and picturing things to us that have happened throughout history and will continue to happen. Does that make sense? For example, a symbolic view might say that all the things that are written here, and I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, everything that's written here about those people being persecuted in John's time, it wasn't just about John's time. It's also happening in America, 2015. And it happened somewhere else in the 1800s. In other words, this situation happened over and over. So this writing isn't about a particular event. It's basically talking about a recurring situation in which we find ourselves. Futurists would tend to say, this, these things are going to happen in the future. And you can begin to look and see, and there's kind of a roadmap for that to happen. Historicists, it's all of history. You can look back and plot it out. Preterists, most of this has already happened in the past. So one of the ways to look at that is just to ask the question of when will these things happen? And different people have held to these different views over time. Question? Yes. So where in this scenario would the Left Behind series fall? And what do you think about that? Left Behind series, probably one of the most successful changes of thinking in, uh, in America. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, the dispensational movement and how prevalent that idea and those ideas have become. It's, a, it's, real, it's an interesting story. But basically, the Left Behind series is, falls in the futurist side of things. In other words, that the predominance, I'm speaking with pretty broad brush here, so we'll talk about the exceptions to this later, but fundamentally, the things in Revelation are going to happen in the future, and that's the Left Behind. The Left Behind series is a particular brand of that that says certain things are definitely going to happen certain times and certain ways. It's a way of looking at the futurist view that's very structured, particularly chronologically very structured. But it is a futurist view that these things are going to happen in the future. One of the interesting things about it and what makes part of what makes it compelling is the idea that it's in the future, but here's the interesting question, how far in the future? If you could be sure that the things in Revelation were going to happen, oh, 3,000 years in the future, you probably wouldn't bother to read Revelation very much. But here's the thing. You begin to see similarities between what's happening now, what happened then, and you start to think maybe it's imminently in the future, and maybe by reading this carefully enough, I can predict when and what will happen. 
We all as human beings have natural uh, desire for security. We'd like to know what the future holds. And so there's, it's pretty compelling. I mean, that's one of many reasons it's compelling. It's a very interesting way of looking at it. And, and uh, there's a lot of evidence that would suggest that, that that's a valid way of looking at it. But left behind would be in the futurist camp. Uh, can you tell us through history since this was written what has been the predominant view of Christians as far as the interpretive views are concerned? Yeah, good question. Nice hot little argument about what did the original Christians think and different people have different views. Some would say that they were preterists. They expected and thought that it happened right away. Some would say no, the futurist view was the one that held sway. They understood this as being about the end of times. And some are gonna to point to certain church fathers and say, no, they had an idealistic, or well, I'm gonna call it symbolic view. They understood that it wasn't necessarily tied to things in the past. So from the earliest Christians, you get things that would lead you to believe maybe different things. And it's entirely possible that they didn't all see it exactly the same way in the early centuries. The historicist view uh, you, you'll see a little bit of that before the reformers, but that really came into its own in the time of the reformers. Think Martin Luther, think John Wesley, later I realize, but think because we're a, in the Wesleyan tradition, I mentioned John Wesley. Think Martin Luther, most of the reformers, not exactly sure what John Calvin thought. This is the only book that he didn't write a commentary on. Wise man. Uh, I think he was planning to make a movie, but then he died. Seriously, it, this is the one book he didn't write a commentary on, so it's hard to say, but predominantly the reformers saw it in a kind of a historicist view, mainly because when we get there, you'll see, and why it makes sense that they saw it this way because of their life experiences. The Pope at that time was such a natural antichrist figure for them that they cast it that way, and that kind of led them into a historicist kind of view. So early church, you see some diversity. Modern times, really the futurist view uh, it has, has really probably predominant. But lately, you see more and more people, you see more and more scholars with a symbolic view. So historically, it's, it's been across the board a little bit through time. These have all been, when I say valid, I mean ways that Christians have sincerely understood the book of Revelation through time. All four of these have been. Right now, you'll find some preterists, uh, Probably the most famous that you might know would, that I can think of off the top of my head is probably like the Bible Answer Man, guy Hank Hanegraaff, that does some great work. This answers, I believe he's a preterist of one variety. Historicists, not so many. Futurists, everybody in the Left Behind series is futurists. Symbolic, symbolic people uh, believe, uh, understand the Bible in that way. They're just all hiding in their homes from the Left Behind people because they're afraid, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But so those three are probably, you'll, you'll hear more about those today. Good question. What is the Church of God's preferred flavor? Church of God, I'm probably the wrong guy to speak for the Church of God, even though I'm standing in a Church of God, ordained by the Church of God, but didn't grow up that way. But I'll, if they have, a they have a position on the millennial uh, situation, I'll tell you that when we get to chapter 20. But you won't, one of the tenets of the Church of God is unity on the absolute essentials of the faith, but that we don't insist on unity in the things that are disputable matters or the things that are not essentials of the faith. And so you'll find Church of God pastors who hold a variety of different views. But fundamentally, probably most consistent with that now would be a symbolic 
understanding. I'm not telling you you won't find Church of God pastors who are futurists or, or any other school, but probably the most consistent with that, with the doctrine of, of the Church of God would be symbolic. But that's okay. That Nobody's going to check your card on the way in. You're welcome to hold whatever, whatever view of this that you want. Would preterists believe that we are currently living in the new heaven and new earth? Well, it's hard for me to speak for them well. Let me try to characterize it this way. Think of a preterist as understanding this book as situated in its time about its time. And consequently, the, most of the book of Revelation, those trial, that whole 4 through 9, think 4 through 19, all the stuff that's happening there is happening as God judging the Roman Empire in one uh, shape, form, or another. Some would say the Jews as well with the fall of destruction in Jerusalem, but basically God judging in that time frame those who are opposed to him, primarily the Roman Empire at that time. And then part of, it's not uncommon for Preterists to think that the very end of this book then would indeed move to the future. And so that part of the book of Revelation does fast forward, but the bulk of it would happen right at that time. So painting kind of with a broad brush, so I don't want you to think that a Preterist would necessarily be forced to try to understand everything in this book as happening at that time, but predominantly so. So consequently, when we go through all that chapter 4 through 19 and all those plagues and all this bad stuff happening, their point is, is like, already been there, already done that. Okay? Happened back there. But when you get to the very end, it's like, oh, we've kind of skipped forward, and that's still an expectation for the future. So it's not quite as cut and dried as, as that, but by and large, Preterists are going to understand this book set in its historical setting and would pull some lessons out of it from that, but wouldn't necessarily see it being applicable like a historicist would. Like, this is probably happening right now. Or even a futurist is, hey, some of this is incipient world events happening here. Funny you should mention that. I have a whole group of questions here that fall in that category. Do you think that the current Middle East events line up with Revelation? Or what about the nation of Israel having already been formed? Things like that. Are we going to talk about that? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about it from different views, because depending on your lens, you're going to see that a little bit differently. I mean, if you're not a futurist, you're probably, by and large, less concerned with that. Again, that's painting with a broad brush, but you're far away less concerned with that. Let me say this. If you want to write a book... Yes, the Middle East is definitely involved with the book of Revelation, and we're right there on the edge. Okay, I'm being a little bit facetious, but what you're going to tend to hear most about in the press are people who tell you that, oh, by the way, did I mention Ahmadinejad? He's in here. Oh, and Putin, he's in here too. Oh, and the Chinese, they're sleepers, but they're going to show up here later chapters. Yeah, obviously, you're going to have people that understand that world events today could be cast into this. I just want to give you a little bit of a caution People have always thought that, in the sense that in any given age, as we look at this book, you could have interpreted Attila the Hun, you could have and people did, you could have interpreted any number of evil figures in world history as being the Antichrist, etc. The reformers interpreted the Catholic Church in that, that role of you know, the false prophet. So my point is, is that that's easy to do, but hard to validate. Does that make sense? So yes, we will talk about all those options, and if that is the case, if you see it that way, 
how are you going to then understand this and what's it going to do to us? It's not the only way to see it, but it is a very popular way to see it. Now, futurists tend to want to see some sense of world events in this. So, good question. And the most popular category of questions I have, what view do you hold? <laughs> well, part of me says, uh, if I tell you that, it, it'll invalidate everything else that, that I'm going to tell you. You'll think I'm really biased about it. My view, and I typically don't, but I will this time. My view, as best I understand it, it would be a bit of an eclectic view, but fundamentally symbolic in a more of what's called a uh, historical redemptive kind of way. In other words, we studied Genesis first. You're going to hear me talk a lot about putting Revelation in the sweep of everything that God is doing. And I'm not saying the other views don't, but the, my view, the best way to understand, the most consistent way to understand Revelation is in a symbolic way. Again, not saying that these things won't necessarily happen, but I want to see them as not confined to any particular period of history. I find that most compelling. That's just my opinion. We're going to talk about several different views, and if you leave this class and you do not hold that opinion, that's fine. We're going to engage our minds in God's Word, and it's going to fan our, our faith. I really believe that the more informed we are, the more we dive into this word, the more stronger faith we're going to have to go charge the world and charge the future. But I'll try to always give you the symbolic view, but we're going to do justice to all the other points of view because they're valid points of view. I mean, there's certain points of view we'll talk about and say, this is dumb. But these views <laughs> are held by intelligent people who are seriously looking at the scriptures, and it behooves us to investigate that and take a look at it. So I tend to lean toward... A, a kind of a version of the symbolic view, but I have a great deal of respect for, for the rest. Is it possible to hold more than one view? Can you be a symbolic, symbolicist and a preterist? Yeah, kind of like a uh, hermeneutical schizophrenia. Yes, you can, and there is, <laughs> there is treatment for that, and, and we do offer treatment for that in our life care. Yes, you're going to find an irresistible desire to want to somehow synthesize these together. And I hate to tell you this, that I don't think that that's very logically tenable, by and large, just to say, um, yeah, I'm all of those. Yeah, I just, now, you're going to have to make some choices there. But big picture, is it, is it that big a deal? I'm going to argue not. I'm going to argue that none of these are going to keep you from knowing Jesus Christ and taking the, the Word of God to a broken and hurting world, so relax. You will find, as we go through, and go, well, that makes sense. Now, wait a minute, that also makes sense. That's good. That engages our brain and helps us walk around it a little. You can do a little bit of synthesis, but at some point, there's some of these that are kind of mutually exclusive. But we'll try to point that out, too. Where does it make sense to say, you know, it's not unreasonable to look at this both of these ways, and they could very well both be true at the same time? Good question. Well, that's our introduction. In our next lesson, we're going to dive into the text, and I'd like to spend a lot of time in the text. It didn't seem like we did that tonight, but... I'd like to spend a lot of time in the text, but I really want you to frame this up. Let's not get so caught inside the weeds that we cannot see the bigger picture here. Genesis, we've just come off of that, those of you that have been in that with us, and you, you begin to see what God is doing in history. As we see Revelation, you're going to find here very little that's about Terry or about an individual, but very much it's about God dealing with all of his people. And once in the same time, it's going to be very personal, but it's also going to be huge in its scope. 
So I think you'll find that's going to be very useful. But as we dive in, starting with the seven letters to the churches, it's going to be very practically applicable. Those letters were written to seven churches at the time, but no one thinks that there are not lessons for us. Here's an interesting challenge. Read chapter 1 through 3. And so if you're a historicist, you think those churches represent different stages of history, and I'll tell you what those are. But many of the other views say it's sort of like a horoscope. Every church falls into one of those seven categories. So here's my question to you, and many of you don't go to this church, and that's fine, is as you read that, where's your church in there? And so we'll take an informal poll on that next time, okay? You're going to be one of the you're doing everything right or the you're doing nothing right churches, all right? Okay, that's my challenge, but I won't make you raise your hands. We'll see you next time. We'll talk about the seven churches. Thanks.